and welcome back to Beyond the 18, a podcast where we talk about the games, break down tactics, and like I said, predict the future with incredible accuracy. Um, I actually maybe want to start with our intro because we have a new name. We're now Beyond the 18 instead of Outside the 18. A huge development, a huge slip up, our research department totally failed to do their due diligence and really let us down. Uh, however, we're, we're here, uh, new name, same shame. Um, and we're still talking premier league. How are you doing? My good friend, Rodrigo. I'm good. I'm good. I feel terrible about my choice of interns, uh, because of the name slip, but honestly, if this if this weekend could have been more exciting when it came to the EPL, I, I don't know how. It was another absolute route of goals, every which way. Unbelievable. So I couldn't be more excited. I also feel like I'm in a daze. Some of these I, games, I look back and I say, I know you happened. <laughs> but what a what that must have been its own hurricane, you know? They all look the same after a while. Uh credible week. Incredible week. Incredible week. I've got a couple of stats for you on this incredible week that I wanted to hit you with. Please. Number one, in two weeks of the Premier League, we have not had a single draw. Every single game has had a winner and a loser. That is excitement. That's America's game. That's America's game. (laughs) Yes. They're doing it for all the Christian Pulisic 14-year-old fans out there. Yeah. Second thing, this weekend we had 44 goals, which is the most scored in a Premier League weekend since the league went down to 20 teams. So, um, the it, you're not wrong when you're saying that it felt like there's a lot of scoring. This was the most scoring we've ever seen in the Prem. And uh, yeah, defenses, you're trash. Offenses, keep <laughs> doing what you're doing because it was it, it, it's exciting. Except I, I, for Manchester United, you guys could. Do yourself a favor and learn a couple things about attacking, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> the other thing I mentioned up at the lead is we just predict the future. Like, you know, it sometimes I will say it's a burden being so smart and so much more right than other people, but uh, I live with this. It's my cross to bear. Um, I, I hand up, I did say Tottenham would be the upset. Uh, that was clearly not the case. They smashed Southampton in that game. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna give myself a little credit when we kind of get to that game in the breakdown. But I'm sure um, you will. The smartest people in the world always do. <laughs> yeah, I'm citing myself. Uh, Ed notes, of course. Footnotes are for chumps. Um, and middle we, schoolers. Don't that forget. being said, we we predicted Everton mm. would just blow West Brom away, and you did. that happened. You you did. you also said Arsenal I, would would win i did say that and and then you had a couple other predictions that were yes that weren't that weren't uh that weren't all that wrong if you think about them creatively uh mm. so i'll give you this leeds fulham i was looking for a scrap of two champions league teams looking for something i said that would end one zero but being championship teams let me tell you it, the defense didn't necessarily pick up any of a slack in this game. Punches were thrown. None were blocked. We had two Rockies going at it. Full ham, if you will. Mm. And unfortunately, it was a 1-0 game to Leeds against my prediction. But it was a 1-0 game that ended 4-3. <laughs> 
one so, goal differential. I, I see. Mm. I see the the connection here. Yeah. I think. I think. Uh, I think. To uh, my point, it was a great battle of two teams mm. that found strength uh, with also, I think, pretty pretty severe vulnerability. Um, you know, uh, I watched I watched that game, and we'll talk about it a little bit more. But I, I really did think that uh, Leeds was the better team in the beginning. But as the game progressed, I realized that their weaknesses, I think, are just a little bit uh, harder to see. Um, and the other game, uh, we we both we both of course uh, knew that Liverpool Chelsea should be a game. It I think was kind of actually what you alluded to though, which was that it in a small way was kind of a standstill for most of the time um, until the water broke, uh, the dam lost its all important uh, Christian Christensen, and Liverpool came away with the win. Um, and finally, the prediction that I couldn't have gotten more wrong uh, was the Wolves uh, was the Wolves City game. And yet, tell me with a straight face that those one on ones—I think I counted at least one handsful, whatever the number that is—that Wolves had on goal. Tell me that the, any one of those couldn't have been a, a beautiful, albeit but very much earned goal. Um, totally. I, I think that I think that that game. As as close as it doesn't look on paper, uh, would was a lot closer. And you know, and you know those wolves. I mean, I don't know what Patricia says in there, but I think he must make people feel awfully uh, encouraged because their second half performances, I feel like, are always yeah, something to see. Um, well, let's get right into the games. Um, we had, as we said at the top of the show, a lot of goals, a lot of action. All winners, all losers. Um, the first game of the week, Everton 5, West Brom 2. The early game on Saturday, Everton is good. Um, I, I want to say that because I think the other things I had to say about this game might not really communicate that. Um, West Brom is not as bad as I thought they were going to be. I know the scoreline looks pretty rough, but West Brom got a first half Red card, uh, former gunner Kieran Gibbs, just kind of like slap punched Hamas Rodriguez in the face. And some more stuff has come out about it. And it, supposedly going into the tunnel, he said that he would do it again. I, I, I watched a lot of Kieran Gibbs when he was at Arsenal, kind of followed him loosely at West Brom. I was very surprised. He's a very poised player. I think his last red card was in 2014. This is not like a guy who loses his cool. So, Something off happened there, and, and my guess is something was said. But um, after that point, you know, it's hard to really evaluate a team when they go down to 10 men, and especially a, a team coming in um, out of the championship. And West Brom, to their credit, down 10 men. They came out of the second half, and the score is 2-1, and they score a goal, and they pull level. Um, and I think actually – both of the goals that West Brom scored, not the one off the set piece, but the second one, uh, sorry, the first one, they kind of carved through the middle of the field. And and that was something that really jumped out at me about Everton is, wow, Hamas Rodriguez distributes the ball really well. Like this team is really exciting on the attack. And Decore and Allen can really scoop up a lot of balls. But Hamas is also not going to really play a whole lot of defense at all. And it reminds me a little bit of Mesut Ozil 
when teams see that, they would just run down the center of Arsenal and kind of get a lane. And and I can see that happening to Everton against some smart teams where they really try to run the counter right through the middle at him, and it worked. And it, it, it was alarming for me because West Brom is not very good at doing that exact thing um, and was able to do it pretty quickly on Everton. Uh, our second game, the one that you were mentioning, was that Leeds-Fulham absolute throwdown. So Leeds 4, Fulham 3. Bielsa still in the tracksuit, uh, looking large and in charge, and Leeds still scoring goals left and right. Um, I just want to point out, Bielsa wears his tracksuit, his Leeds tracksuit. I swear that guy probably wears that tracksuit nonstop. Like he just sleeps in it, wakes up, supermarket all the time. And then on the other side, you have Scott Parker, the man rocket that we talked about last week, dressed to the nines, looking like. Italian supermodel and Scott Parker hasn't won a game in the Premier League yet. Bielsa looking dangerous. So hmm, something to think about for you all making your fashion choices. I, I'm curious, what were your thoughts watching this game? What were you feeling? Well, first of all, an important lesson that you pointed out: if you want to be dangerous, wear a tracksuit. That's clear. Uh, aside from, I think. What was interesting was to see the Leeds side have what seemed like a very similar approach to their game against Liverpool, um, right? A similar outcome as well, but their approach was, I thought, very quick in build-up. I mean, they, they, you know, I think a lot of teams, when you play at a lower level, um, a lot of times where you can make up the difference on quality of players, on essentially your organization, how well you're working as a team. And when you see that at the lower levels, you tend to see extremes I think are pretty familiar, like a team that really, really packs it in the back and has lightning fast counters. A very classic like underdog strategy because it seems to be safe and defense is a very coordinated thing. So it's a good place to invest, right? Because you don't need great players to know where to be. Attacking, I think for a lot of, t- a lot of people's perspectives, uh, kind of follows a similar, I mean, a, a different route which is it seems like something that takes a lot of creativity, right? A lot of uh, individual talent. And there's no doubt that scoring a goal involves someone shooting the ball, and shooting the ball is something you got to practice a lot if you want to be talented at it. Uh, but that said, you can structure offense. You can make it its own process. It may not have the same rigid form uh, that like a 4-4-2 with sliding defenders looks like, but it can be something, I think, uh, that's a little bit more chunked up, like a pick and roll. Teach a team how to pick and roll really well. They don't have to have a master plan. They just need to pick and roll. And they're going to get a few rolls. And unlike basketball, you know, with soccer, it only takes one. Um, and I think that that's what you saw there. They play 1-2. They, play very, they, have, they pick very fast players, which is something, of course, because you make up, right? If you're good at playing quickly mentally, anticipating movement, getting there ahead, if you're a little faster, that just increases the value you get out of it, right? So they have these very fast players. They play one, two, and I think they were strong there. But they're going to fit right in here in the EPL, I think, in their way, because their defense is, uh, is not going to be able to muster their way uh, through, through scoreless games. Um, I think that what you saw in Fulham was a much sloppier team. Those players were physical, strong, 
And I think individually could also like do their job, even if that job was a little bit singular, right, in its flexibility, right? Um, and they really kind of, I thought, forced their way uh, into the box and, and caused trouble. Um, and like, you know, it's funny because I want to I wanna in some way kind of try to put them a little lower on the totem pole because for some reason man buns just get me upset. But I can't do it. They're actually a team not that different from what we're looking at in other sides. I mean, granted, the other sides might be experiencing something temporary that Leeds is going to find is more permanent for them. But at this point in time, they really did have, a, I think, a, a pretty good performance. They definitely have something. Um, I felt like the Fulham team as well didn't necessarily you know do themselves any favors uh i was watching the first five watching the first five minutes of that game and i was like when's the first pk gonna happen and i swear it happened like five minutes later uh fulham taking down a guy in the box i thought you know they're technically sloppy is that what makes them kind of tactically sloppy or is the other way around and i think it's mostly a technical thing um but at the same time you know they, that's their weakness. They make up for it in, in, in strength, some individual play here and there, but really strength getting it. I mean, they, they, they're going to send the ball into the box and they're going to, they're going to send people after it. I think it's a pretty simple game plan. And I think against some teams, it might, it might just work. It might just work. Um, especially with, with some of the defense we've been seeing. Uh, I want to move to our next match of the week. Brighton three, Newcastle zero. I, I'm kind of becoming obsessed with Brighton. Like, I really, really enjoy watching this team play. I feel like Grant Potter has them playing with a ton of confidence um, and has them playing really exciting attacking football, which is not really what you expect from a club that's kind of been on the precipice of relegation for every season that they've been in the Premier League. Um Tariq Lamptey is an absolute inspiration. That kid is going places. Watching his link-up play and his pace is just terrifying. Like, I can't even possibly imagine what it's like going up against a kid like that. And I say kid, as I did last week, because that is a child playing in this game. Um, That's so exciting to hear, Duffy. Music to my ears. Shout out to Chelsea, by the way, for selling him to Brighton for like $3 million. Hilarious and perfect. And we're going to get to Chelsea and, and maybe why they could use a Tariq Lamptey. But um, Newcastle is, is rough. And I do feel for Newcastle fans because there was potential for them to be taken over by a Saudi Arabian group this summer and cue all the photoshops of like Coutinho and a Newcastle jersey and you know, we're getting Pochettino and, and no, you're not. And you're, you've got Andy Carroll with mutton chops from 1875 as your main attacking threat. And he looks like he was born in 1875 in this game. That dude is so slow and is so stiff. And yeah, it's a bummer. Newcastle's a really historic side, uh, a club with a really strong following. And they just got, totally mollywopped in this game by a, a young club that's really kind of taking a different approach and is invested in a young manager who wants to play a really exciting and attacking brand of football. And I, I, I love the trajectory of Brighton and I hate the trajectory of Newcastle. Uh, and that just was totally evidence in the soccer that you saw. Um, our next game was Arsenal-West Ham. Arsenal 2, West Ham 1. 
kind of a, kind of an interesting game. Um, I I I, I want to kind of go to you first to hear what you were thinking about the tactics in this game, and I, I think we're going to talk about something connected to this more later. But you know, Arsenal getting the win, I'm happy about that. But I want to hear from you first, so then I can kind of get my takes. Absolutely. So. I wanted Arsenal to smash West Ham, like my prediction said. Um, and I think a part of the reason why I said that was more so because I was hopeful that they would smash them uh, and feel that the way they're trying to play and the way they're growing as a team is worthwhile and clearly the direction to go. I think that's actually what it was in the back of my head that said, yeah, to put that a game as a thrashing. Um, because I, I would only hope... Be, and, and the reason for that is I actually think... Um, you know, I, I, for some reason, I still feel like Arteta has so much to prove to me when I'm willing to fall in love with a coach in one game. But for some reason, for Arteta, I, I have such a space that he has to cross in order for me to gain, for me to, you know, give him my trust. But for what it's worth, if he's responsible for the things that I think I'm seeing, and maybe I'm just seeing Ghost in the Machine, but if he's responsible, then then I, I then I think he's going in the right direction, and I think he probably has a pretty decent vision given what he has, which is a great pairing for anybody. It's good to see people meeting up. With a with a with a person who sees them for what they are, um, Arsenal I think played really well. Um, not perfect, uh, but and, and to be clear, getting better never looks perfect. I mean, if you're getting better, you're always trying something. You know, you're always making mistakes because you're trying things that are new, and those and those don't always work out. Um, I think what they did really well, and, uh, and we can talk about this a little bit more, is that the way they engaged West Ham was to make them play the game that Arsenal wanted to play. Arsenal is extremely fast. They have a lot of speed up top, and they have players that can dribble the ball pretty well. Um, you know, in, in especially in Willian and and, and Aubameyang, um, and you know, with a guy like like a Zed who can play as a as a point guy and turn with the ball up top. What they need to make all of that work is space. You need space, and they, I think, did a great job creating space. Uh, you, you saw them kind of engaging, kind of high on the wings, so that they were making contact with one of the opposing players, and then dropping really hard into the space to help with ball circulation, if you want to call it that. They're not thinking that way, but you can call it that from the outside. They would drop back hard, and what that does is it, it does one of two things: either the guy stays there, and I receive the ball at my feet with space. Well, the guy comes with me, in which case there's space behind him. And I think that they did a great job of playing out of the back slowly, emotionally allowing West Ham to feel like this was a game that could be even, and then really pumping the ball back uh, uh, to, the, to these wide sides um, to create space behind. Because they had they had their chances with, top, with balls in behind. And you saw, I think if you watched the other games we're talking about, you saw a lot of games where teams were packing in the back, teams were playing more defensive at certain times um, because maybe they lost a player or maybe because, you know, they were just getting overrun or they'd already scored an early goal. A million reasons, but there were a lot of games where one team was packing in the back and the question was always, can they make space behind them? And I honestly think Arsenal found a way. Maybe it won't work at every team, but with West Ham, it sure did. Um, so I, I thought it was a good game. I'm glad they won. It was a little... <laughs> it was a little close uh, for anybody, uh, you know. Nervy. Yeah, yeah. It was a little close, but I do think that the way they're playing is the right way. I think it's they're going to get better. I'm just going to keep keep moving forward. I I I agree with you that it feels like moving forward. I feel like under Emery and even under Wenger at the end, 
this is a game we tie or even lose. Like, it had that kind of written all over it. After Mikel Antonio scored that goal, I just I felt that Arsenal fan feeling of like, okay, ugh, here we go. Like, we're going to end up with a draw, and that's like all of what the last few years have been. That being said, um, I'm pleased with the result. I think what kind of scared me in this game is both of the goals sort of come from moments of Saka winning his one-on-one, finding a nice pass through, and being able to break the line. And without those two moments of you know real brilliance from him, we don't come away with anything. They only had three shots on target in the whole game. Uh, and West Ham also only had three shots on target. I don't think West Ham was like cruising by any means. But I worry about the creativity in, in the middle of the field. Um, and I really, really, really hope that Arsenal signs some uh, strong, creative midfield players because it's a concern. And uh, it's a concern in this campaign. If we lose Chaka or we lose Ceballos, that midfield is is rough and it's rough to look at. So um, I, it's a, it, you know, it's a good result. It's the win. This was kind of a game, though, where, yeah, it it, 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 it was not super reassuring to me. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I have some questions, and I hope they're answered in the transfer market for Arsenal in, in the coming weeks because, yeah, there's going to be, you know, it's a long season, and there's some, some tough fixtures coming up. Um, but moving on to another thriller of the game, Leicester 4, Burnley 2. I, I wanted to say really quickly, I, one, I, Leicester's a good team. I don't want to take away from Leicester. This scoreline is kind of unfair, in my opinion. I thought Burnley was a lot better than this, and I looked at some stats, and they backed up what I thought. The expected goals is – Leicester only had one expected goal, um, and Burnley had one and a half. And I know expected goals misses stuff. There's, it's, it's not a perfect stat. But it is meaningful, um, and both teams had almost equivalent shots on target. And I, I thought Burnley looked good, and that own goal really kind of deflated them and kind of knocks the wind, wind out of them. Um, but that being said, you know, Leicester comes out with a strong result and getting some good production. What were you seeing in this game? How would you feel about it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, this was my favorite game of the week. Um, which I, you know, it's as this podcast seems to work with me, things I realize while I'm doing it. Um, it was by far my favorite game, I think. Um, I, I, I agree with you that, um, Burnley may not be as bad as the scoreline would show, but you know, how good you are is not a, it's not a static thing. You know, every game starts zero, zero. You don't get you don't start with with a scoreline, you know, and I think that in that case today they today they or that day, yesterday, uh, they weren't that good. I, they weren't as good, but that way I think that the Burnley goal, um, the first goal uh, was first of all I think that was a foul. I don't think that was a goal, but I mean it was an it was an impressive effort. I mean it's still impressive to throw a guy to the ground, catch it off your chest, and score on the left side with, you know with like grace at that, but still, I think it was a foul, but what I loved 
from Leicester is I feel like they're what uh, they're in a way what Leeds would would like to become. I think they play a very similar style, um, and you know they have a real true performer in Jamie Vardy. Uh, the goal that he scored, or not, he just scores the first the goal that he doesn't even technically assists, but he really does if you think about it. This run he makes into the space is incredible. He he's he's he gets a pass on the run, but just like any normal person would make the mistake, it goes a little bit too far behind him because he's just too fast, and he decides to let the ball roll turns on a defender, a second defender is coming to help, and he shields the first defender into the second, both go to the ground. He turns to take the shot, and honestly, like any normal human, you've made all this beautiful effort, ball there on the ground, but the defenders are in the way. And as they get up, time limited, he passes the ball back to the top of the 18. If he holds onto that ball one second longer to just consider how to shoot the ball, that opportunity goes away. Passes it back, and that guy does a one-touch pass to who? The same guy who sent him the pass. Yeah. That, that you know what that shows me? That shows me a guy who's making a pass, and he doesn't stop there. It's not, it's not a guy, he's the kind of guy who thinks to himself, my pass is the first step of my run. And that guy meets the ball there at the top. I'm trying to remember his, his name now. Um, Harvey Barnes. Harvey, Harvey yeah. Barnes. A beautiful pass. That he falls to the top of the 18 with a one-touch shot to the bottom left. It was a beautiful goal. And to me, I mean, I can't look at that and say that that's not something that the team has down. You know, it's a moment of creativity. But those creative moments come from a structure that everybody's learning around together. Right? That's when you get those beautiful moments. And I know they seem like outliers, but you get more outliers when when you've got a system of play that I think is working well for everybody. Everybody agrees on, especially. I, I really love that. I mean, that, that I mean, I know those are only two goals, but in a way, they kind of summed up the way I watched the rest of the game. I just think that they played very, very well into space. They we, they are always executing the thing they should be trying to execute in the places they were. Com, you know, outside with a defender on, they're trying to make combination plays. You know, balls out wide with space with with guys spread wide because they've been sending so many crosses. They drive through the center. You know, they drive to the center, people close on them, they play the ball wide and cross for the header. I mean, they were always trying to solve the problem in front of them with, I think, the best tool that they had in the toolbox. Um, and, and like, you know, sometimes you play a little worse, you don't get as many of those as you would like. Sometimes you play a little better and you blow out a team with four goals. Expected goals, I think, should capture it. Maybe we don't evaluate some things as well as we could. I, I'd almost put it that way. Um, yeah, because like I, I said, I think I said this in a, in, a, in, a, in a conversation we had before. A game with a guy who counterattacks, it's going to have two moments. And they either come out with a goal expectation of zero or two. <laughs> Another team is going to be grinding out little things from outside the 18 all game. And they're going to come out with a similar expected goal. It, but it's a different, different kind of play. Uh-uh. I like what you said about Jamie Vardy. That goal that he set up was his play was brilliant. If you haven't seen it, listener, you should go back and watch it. It's a great clip. Um, and I think it's funny. I think he, him, and Brendan Rodgers is like an amazing marriage. They're two people who occupy a really similar space in soccer in my mind. Um, they have talent, but people don't think of them as particularly talented. They think of them as people with amazing work ethic who work really hard and work their squad really hard. Um, and that's kind of how they get the results that they do. But 
that kind of like work ethic forward vision of those two people really takes away and undercuts the skill that they have. Like Brendan Rodgers is an amazing manager. James Vardy is an amazingly skilled player. And that was really on display here. That being said, take it to the bank. Lester is going to crash and burn after uh, the new year. Brendan Rodgers just runs his guys into the ground and it happens every single year. It's going to happen in the end. Sorry, Lester. I hate to say it. I don't. I kind of would like to not see you in the top six. That's fine. Anyway, um, I think that, that we, we, we've nailed this game, and we should move on to another barn burner, seven-goal thriller, Tottenham five, Southampton two. Man, what a game. I, Tottenham, so much going on right now. There's so much happening. Gareth Bale is coming back. Like, what the hell? No thank you. Hard pass. Please stay in the drid. Keep golfing over there. No one wants you here. But he's coming back to the Premier League. Spurs also signed Regulon, which I don't know if anyone knows this, but Spurs left back was this guy named Ben Davies. It, you would not be at fault if you didn't know that because I doubt anyone in the world knew that he was their left back. This is like an upgrade that is order of magnitude approaching infinity by getting Regulon and plugging him in over Ben Davies. So Spurs suddenly the most exciting team. They come into this game against Southampton, who looked terrible last week. Um, and Southampton goes up. They score the go-ahead goal. Uh, Danny Yang scores his goal in the 32nd minute, and they were the better team through the first 30. Uh, really running wild on Spurs and looking very confident and very strong, creating a lot of chances. And then uh, Tottenham just steals a couple back. And a lot of people talking about this, Harry Kane kind of playing this like false nine, distributing the ball incredibly well. And yeah, and, and Tottenham just starts to kind of pull it back. What I noticed in this game, though, is Tottenham goes up 2-1, um, and Southampton just plays, continues to play a really high line. Uh, their defense is sitting at the halfway line whenever they're, they've pushed the ball into the offensive um, half. And they just get burned by Sun making these runs over the top again and again and again. I felt like I was having deja vu watching every single goal. I was like, oh, he's going to kick it over the top. Oh, Sun's faster than all their back. Oh, it's another goal. It's like... At what point are you going to figure this out, that maybe you guys should, like, drop back and sit deep? And this is a theme. We're going to be talking about sitting deep later. And Southampton, I'm, I'm like, part of me is like, yo, sit back. Goal differential matters. Like, you guys just are just giving away goals left and right here. And then another part of me is like, well, you know what? Like, you're either going to lose or you can hope to get a draw or a win. Like, you're going to end up with a result and – yeah, losing by three or losing by one, you're still going to lose. So, like, trying to keep the pressure and continue to break them down, I kind of respect it, I guess. Um, and I also like it as an Arsenal fan because I think it makes Tottenham look really good, and I actually don't think that they were particularly great in this game. Um, especially in the first half, they just looked outclassed by a team that is not very good and is just well-coached. And I think that is the thing that I walk away from this game thinking like Spurs just has better quality in some of their players. Um, and, and that went out the day, 
But Jose Mourinho, like I, I just I don't see it, and I don't see it in a long-term sense. I don't see it in short-term success. You know, I think they push for top four, but um, yeah, this was totally a game that without Harry Kane really finding those nice passes and Son making some great runs, Southampton is going to win this game. And um, you're not going to play against a team that just bizarrely sits on the halfway line every single week. So I don't know. Great signings for Spurs. Get excited about that, you all. Um, but yeah, it, our, it, our fan's clearly not a Tottenham fan. Our one listener, he's he's not one, a Tottenham fan. He he wouldn't be. He wouldn't stick with us like this. Well, it, it's I I, don't, I I know I'm very biased, and I'm trying to like remove that. But I talked to some of my friends who are Spurs fans, and they had similar reactions in the sense of like, like what the hell is going on watching the first half of that game and. Mm. And yeah, you get the result, and that's what counts. Like, Arsenal got the result, and that's what counts. But like in the Arsenal game, I would say there is some cause for concern just yeah. in, in, in the team structure and play under Jose. To be, to, be, to be truthful, before we move to the next game, I think I just hate, I just kind of hate Mourinho and was just happy to hear you continue to explain how bad they are. So <laughs> maybe I threw that question in there. Ah, it's it's a little bit of music to my ears. I like the players. Uh, I like the players on Tottenham. I don't like Mourinho, and unfortunately, it's baby with the bathwater for me. So, I'm addicted to Jose being in the Premier League, though he's appointment television. The dude is hilarious, and like, I, I don't, I've never watched Keeping Up with the Kardashians, but when I watch him, I feel like I get a similar brain activity that like <laughs> viewers of that show would get. You understand why the show exists? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm like. Oh, you know, keep it up with Jose. Let's go. Keep episode, it up with Jose. Episode yeah. 50. Um, how about keeping up with Liverpool? They're they're cracked. And they just signed Tiago, and then they signed Diego Jota in, like, a second. And it's like, oh, okay, Liverpool, you, you know, run it back. Uh, next game, Liverpool 2, Chelsea 0. Um, did Kai Havertz play this game? Can can you maybe look that up really quick? I I was asking some other folks about that, but was he out there or or is Frank like saving him for a bigger game or I I'm getting the slander in because all of last year I had people chatting shit on Twitter about how trash Pepe is and it's like, bro, players take time to adjust to the Premier League. Be patient. Let them figure out where they're playing, how they're playing. They're working with new guys. It takes time. So to the Havertz doubters, the people who are actually serious about not buying into him, give it time. Let him figure it out. Let him stop playing so far on the left, and I think you're going to see some stuff. That being said, yo, Chelsea still sucks, and their back line still sucks. And Losing to Liverpool like this, like, you know, it's early. They're figuring it out. I, I want to give them, you know, some time. But you, you, you kind of got to start pulling it together at some point, Frank. Like, it's still looking very, very clunky. Um, yeah, I'm curious to w- what you were thinking about this game. How are you feeling about it? Um, yes. Yeah. I'll, I'll say this uh, because you mentioned it first. Uh couldn't be more excited uh, to to have a one Tiago Alcantara in the midfield for this team. Um, you know, 
I he comes in, you know, in the second half uh, and finds his rhythm when they're playing against ten men. He makes a crucial error too, mind you, uh, that leads to a penalty kick, which then is saved by Allison. And to be honest with you, I was excited about him coming as he was. I think he's going to be an excellent addition to their team, and I think he's going to make them extremely dangerous, extremely dangerous. Um, but to have the first game go like that, I couldn't be more excited, honestly. Uh, put him in in a low pressure situation, right? You're up and you know with the with the man down. Um, against the other team, have him play, I think, very fluidly. He looked like himself. Um, and then to make to make an error such that your own team has to bail you out, immediately you feel that sense of like, oh, well, you know, I thank you. You know, you feel a little grateful that somebody helps you out because it would have been embarrassing, you know, in that way to have that. And I think that's exactly the kind of setting you want to have for a play like that. He's clearly going to be extremely talented. You don't want him to lose that confidence, his sense of like moving the ball fluidly and just playing like he does and how he has been in a way, bringing his own like flavor, you know, bring some Byron flavor, I think, to the attack. But uh, but at the same time, you know, you don't want his head to get too big. You know, he's the one of the only signings coming to Liverpool, you know, as well. Um so, you know, I think it was really great to have that all set up that way. I'm, I'm a storyteller, though, so who knows whether any of this will come true. Uh, but I thought they were I thought they played very well. Um, I don't have a whole lot to say about this game in a certain sense. I think, like you said, it's hard to judge a team when they're a man down. And the second half, they were certainly a man down. And it was clear from there that they were going to be taken down. Uh, but there's no doubt in the first half that Arsenal, you know, isn't. They aren't Chelsea. quality. They, yeah, are, no, well, but are oh, sorry, sorry. Liverpool uh, isn't Liverpool. You know, they they are still dangerous. Just put it that way. They're still dangerous, and they're still going to be dangerous. I think to pretty much every team they're going to play. Um, yeah. Fitness and and keeping and keeping you know mindful that teams know how they play is something to be thinking about. But honestly, I think it's part of my excitement about the Alcantara signing. He's gonna. I think, like I said. He's coming, I think, with a lot of flavor from Bayern. And I don't think it's that crazy to imagine uh, this Liverpool team playing with a little bit more of a Bayern zest. I, uh, you know, Bayern is, a, is special in their way. But Liverpool, you know, they can play very fast on the counter. They can press you. They can build out of the back. They can do it all. And if they really want to, they can really put their foot on the gas, which is something that Bayern does a lot. And... I yeah. just I think it's gonna be a great mix there. Uh, Chelsea, I, you know, for what it's worth, I think that I think that they're playing better um, under Frank than pretty much anyone I've seen them play under because I just started watching at the end of my good friend Antonio Conte's uh, uh, reign Time there. Yeah. yeah, and and from there I've just seen them kind of steep slowly downwards, and I don't think I ever even got to fully see the potential they had before that, and. Um, and but I can say this: they're getting better. They're getting better. I, I like that. That's going that direction. I think you just got to be patient. I think I think he can do it. Just got to be patient with both both the team and him. You know, he is, this is a this is a big 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 deal to him. I'm sure, it matters a lot. And he's just he's just getting his into it. You know. Yeah. Let's give him some time. Got to get a freaking new goalkeeper though. Let me tell you. <laughs> oh my goodness, that guy is a head case. He's I, a head case. I feel bad. Like I, it, it bums me out now in the beginning, it was really funny because 
he's so expensive and you know you, you view him as this really big signing this big ego player kind of, but then i'm like you know what that's a human being that's someone's son experiencing trauma that exactly that, <laughs> that is, is someone, someone experiencing trauma right now we are watching him go through trauma on live television at, at what point is Frank liable for, like, abuse? Like, legally, like, putting him out there instead of Willie Caballero? Like, it, yeah. I, it just you makes know, me wonder. Yeah, it, it makes me wonder about... I, I can't get into all the legalese. Like, I, I don't have the mind for that. And maybe that's some, something we need to get the research team on. But I think it's, it's, I think it's Mastermind. It's I just want to jump in. I think it's Mastermind Lampard. I mean, what is the kiss of death but to say, oh, you want to play? Go ahead. Oh, keep going. Oh, you want to leave? Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, like why? Why hold the guy back early? Have his, let him have his shout. No, just go ahead, go ahead. You know, um, I, I maybe a little bit more seriously about this game. Two quick notes that I had written down. One, um, Havertz made a lot of small mistakes in this game. He gave the way the ball a lot and just missed time passes a lot. Uh, and I think that's a good example of what I was talking about when I was joking in the beginning that, you know, that's just going to come with knowing how people make their runs and getting in more reps with those guys. And he'll connect those passes. But he also had to pull back and defend a lot more on the left. And I'm not – I didn't watch him a lot at Bayer Leverkusen, but uh, from what I understand, it's not really something he did a ton. And Marcos Alonso is just not a particularly good defensive player, and he's playing left back. So – Havertz is having to drop really deep, and I think it's hard for him to kind of work from way back there coming out of defensive positions. Um, on the other side of the ball, something I noticed with Liverpool, just one moment that I think really encapsulates just how smart Klopp is and, and the way that he's coaching that team. In the 24th minute, there's this little interplay between Trent and Mo Salah on the right-hand side, and Trent is able to get this cross off and – Chelsea defends it well and recovers the ball. And they're sort of like on the deep on the right uh, of Liverpool's attack. Chelsea has the ball trying to bring it back out. And Liverpool just completely swarms that area, overloads it with players, and forces the ball out for a throw. And then they're all able to reset their shape and prevent the counterattack. And I'm like, man, that's just a testament to everyone really knowing what needs to happen that, like, we don't let a team counter on us when our right back is in their opposing 18, like so, so pushed up. We, we, we know what to do and we really like crash into that. And it was just really beautifully done, small moment. But um, yeah, I think we both love Liverpool to repeat. And I think this weekend, um, yeah, it, it made me feel confident about that. Mm-hmm. Um. Oh, our next game, your blades. Sad times. Sad I, I want If anyone is, if any, if anybody out there is changing the odds on blades to do anything positive in the future, I just want to be clear: that the lines are moving in the wrong direction. Okay, so the first, the first game, first game, <laughs> and uh, if there isn't Sheffield Twitter, I'm going to start my own. The first game, they lose two early goals. I mean. Yeah, you know, that that's a weird game. But if anything, you know, like I said, it's a testament that they didn't get more scored on them. You know, the 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 whole game shifted from being zero zero to zero two within ten minutes of the game. I swear, 
and they're having to press and push themselves in, and they should have been countered like crazy. They should have they should have been scored on again. I tell you now, but they didn't. This game, they lose a man. They actually lose a man, and I tell you, this red card was absolute baloney. Yeah, like a baloney. Talk, yeah, can we talk about that Please. particular moment a little bit more? So, so for for our listener, in that it, this is Aston Villa one, Sheffield United zero. John Egan gets called for a red card very early in the first half for a foul on Ollie Watkins on this Tyrone Mings kind of pings the ball way over the top and they're both running back to get it. Um, I thought it was, I thought it was total bullshit when I was watching it. Um, yeah, but you were saying the same thing. Well, VAR reviewed it and confirmed it a red. So I, I don't know. What, what were you thinking? So, I, I think I can understand because see this is the thing about every every call that's made right um it, it it's much like our, our actual legal system right there are laws written but a lawyer cannot tell you whether something is or isn't against the law all they can tell you is their opinion a judge decides right <clears throat> and that's the same thing we see in soccer you know it, it, you have these rules they're written. But it's the interpretation of those rules that always reigns supreme. And unfortunately, I guess for some circumstances, you know, the in a soccer game you only have one judge. He is the supreme court. It always goes to the supreme court. It doesn't. It doesn't wait for it, its turn. You know, um, and so what he says goes. And and I can understand why VAR wouldn't have turned that over uh, because that red card. I mean, what's happening? Right? It's the last man defending categorically a a place where you can make a red card or you can have a red card. The question then just becomes, did he play the ball or not in the way he was attacking, you know, trying to get the, trying to get the ball. And, you know, in, in that sense, uh, you know, at what point did he start to try to get the ball? Right. But if you watch this VAR replay, the thing is, the thing is that you would see, that the engagement starts with the Burnley player. I think very much so. I think Burnley the is she- pulling... The Sheffield player or Aston Villa? Oh, I'm sorry, Aston I'm Villa. sorry, I'm sorry. The Aston Villa player. Their jerseys are just also similar, you know? Disturbingly <laughs> similar. Agreed. Aston Villa is 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 clearly engaging physically with the, with the defender. And I think it's like a bylaw, right? As I put it, a bylaw, right? It's not written law necessarily, but it's an implied law. It's something we've built around it, you know? Is that when the attacking player engages with the defender physically that that's usually going to be where the foul begins and when you watch this happen he's literally grabbing the arm across the body of the defender and pulling it towards him the guy looks like he's trying to grab the forward more aggressively than he actually is because he's running with one arm across his entire body yep and i saw it Exactly I, the same thing. Exactly, and what you, the what the what the referee sees from the back is a guy whose arm is all the way across his body, sprinting at full speed and barely standing up. And then, of course, you know the the you know the collision and kind of you know brings it to a halt. And when VAR checks that, they say, "Well, you know what? All the categories are checked. I mean, if that's what this guy believes that the intention was not to play the ball." Then what are we going to do? You know, I don't think that you would be able to overrule something as clearly, you know, clearly worth checking out uh, when it comes to something like the referee's understanding of whether of what their intention was. I, I just yeah. don't think they would have been able to reverse that, you know. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, but anyways, my blades still have it coming. I'm telling you. It, <laughs> if anything, this is the perfectly lane trap for their enemies. They're going to come into these games against this all-pink team that's lost two games, and they're going to be like, you know what? These guys must be trash. You know? These little... These little uh, aggressive flamingos all over the field. And they're just going to get it. They're going to get it. I'm telling you. They're going to get it taken back. Um, I, I really believe in them. I think they have a lot. I don't think they've lost much of a step. I think they're going to do well this year. Me too. Uh, hard to judge. Like you said, weird first game. And then this game, the really early red card. And I saw exactly the same thing as you. Ollie Watkins is pulling John, uh, Egan's arm and like making it look like there's contact. Which is smart by him. But... That's, that shouldn't be a totally unrelated thing. But every single time I see the Blades logo, it's like those two scimitars crossed or whatever. It reminds me of the logo of the Shiner or the Shriners. I don't know. Do people... I swear this is like a, a like acid dream from when I was seven years old or something. Because I used to go to the St. Patrick's Day Parade in my hometown and there would be these old middle-aged white dudes who were part of this organization called the Shriners. And they'd wear these little fezes and they had that like exact logo of like the little swords on their helmet. And then they would ride around these mini cars, like these little go-karts. And that was like the whole thing they did in the parade. And I'd get so fired up for them. And now when I watch Sheffield United, I'm like taken back to that moment. And I'm just, it, it feels, it's very strange. I don't know if that actually happened in my life or if that was something I'm remembering from like a fever dream or something like that. It's real. I, I can't shake it out. It's real. It, you looked it up. It's real. Oh, sir, it is real. It is also formally known as the ancient Arabic order of the nobles of the mystic shrine. It's a, it's a, it's a Masonic society. Uh, and let me tell you the naughty oh my gosh uh let me tell you their their fezes are not far afield from that logo i mean i'm i will say this if the conspiracy is true which i'm honestly willing to accept easily for no good reason uh then i think uh that it makes sense i mean look at these guys on the cars they look so happy to be just roaming around in their cars a great a great gang of dudes just trying to do their best and my blades are no different my blades are no different <laughs> okay i'm like so uh, the research team has come through they failed us once and they're 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 earning their pay of zero dollars an hour so thank you research team um i want to move on to our next game before our break uh manchester city three wolverhampton wanderers aka wolves one uh this was an interesting game a little monday night football across the pond um i I was watching the first half and i was like oh shit this is the pep guardiola revenge tour you guys put some slander on my name we are coming for that neck i it made me feel uh a lot of not very good feelings because Manchester City looked really good. And Wolves has given them so many problems in the past. Uh, they beat them twice last year. And um, it didn't look like a good Wolves team. And it looked like a great Manchester City team. Kevin De Bruyne playing really well. Beautiful. Uh, and City go up 2-0. Um, De Bruyne earns a penalty on Sice. And it, it was, it's a penalty. Um, I don't think there's any doubt. 
a really well-worked play by De Bruyne. Um, and Phil Foden, Stockport Iniesta, uh, he gets a goal to make it two before the break. Stockport Iniesta, and, I love. And, and then the second half, it's sort of like, okay, uh, this, this is more, I think, what people expected the game to look like. A lot more chances for Wolves. A lot of missed chances, as you alluded to. Potence had a couple that he just, well, like, a really nicely worked plays, and he just totally whiffed. Um, Raul Jimenez, of course, scored. That dude is legit. I'm shocked that he's still on Wolves and hasn't been picked up by, like, a Juventus or, or a similar kind of club because he is a real talent. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think then we kind of saw in the second half the Manchester City that we saw late last year, which is defensive concerns, uh, which is some lack of confidence, even from some of their really consistent players. On the goal, KDB just got absolutely dusted, like ball right through his legs. Um, nice little nutmeg. Benjamin Mendy is rough at left back, and John Stones is just not a high enough caliber starting center back for a team like Man City. He had a great first half, and then he looked he looked very shaky. Um, so I would be surprised if Manchester City isn't still active in the transfer market and doesn't come away in these last couple of weeks with a few more pieces. So, you, you know, I, I don't want to be too reactionary to them. Um, seeing them in this first game, but yeah, there there still seems to be flaws in that squad and holes in that squad. Less serious, Man City trotted out in these paisley kits today. So glad you brought that up. I okay, one they looked kind of dope. I'm not gonna lie, I didn't really like the way that they looked when I saw the pictures. But on the players, I was like, okay, these look kind of dope. And two, I was like, you know, this is the exact same kit that, like, that bro who goes in to work for Morgan Stanley right out of college, he's in that other, like, really uh, douchey frat. Like, th- this is exactly the kit that he would design, and he would be a Man City fan, too. So I'm like, power to you, Man City, for just leaning into the, like, we're douchebags, kind of, we're, we're going to wear a Paisley, <laughs> and... That's sort of our vibe. Did, but did you did you see the warm ups? They were like not paisley, but they had a single panel stripe of paisley coming down on the shoulders. Uh, it was just it, it was just interesting. I I honestly I I really dig I dig I dig the paisley, but I think it's mostly because it reminded me of like like single and single cell organisms. I was just seeing amoebas and eukaryotes <laughs> all over that bad boy and i was like oh beautiful science i love it but it wasn't that uh it, it, it was something it was something very different would i wear a jersey like that for sure would i laugh like the whole time i wore it absolutely and maybe that's why i'd wear it listener you might not know this but the way that amoeba uh move around those little hairs that you see on the outside of the cell those are called cilia um, they're little tiny legs, and that's the way that they're able to move. A um, little fast fact for you. You can take that to the bank. Also, mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Um, uh, take it both. Well, on, on that note, uh, I think we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about Crystal Palace, the glorious club of South London, and Manchester United. Looking forward to it. 
All right, welcome back. Uh, we are going to get right into it, talking about Manchester United and Crystal Palace. Um, Crystal Palace 3, Manchester United 1. I want to give a little context before we get into this game here. Crystal Palace ended last season with a draw. And before that draw, they had lost seven games in a row. They also finished last season, I believe, with 31 goals scored, which is the second lowest of any team in the Premier League, um, second only to Norwich, who ended up getting relegated. And, and they haven't done a ton in the transfer market. There hasn't really been a big marquee signing for them. This is basically the same side that was running at the end of last season. Manchester United, I think, was on a 14-game unbeaten run in the Premier League. So there really couldn't be two sides uh, on a different trajectory. And Crystal Palace comes in, and they were the better team. I, this is not a weird game where an odd result happened. Crystal Palace dominated this game and dominated Manchester United um, at Old Trafford, not a result I think either of us really um, had penned in here. Um, so yeah, I guess let's let's kind of get into it a little bit. Um, great goals from Crystal Palace. Uh, they get this penalty that I think we're going to talk about a little bit later. They have a goal disallowed for being offsides, and they just dominated attacking within this game. Um, and you were looking up some of the stats for this. So I think maybe we can start there. Uh, what were some of the stats from this that, that really jumped out at you when, when you were thinking about this game? Well, I'll just say before I even jump to the stats that I agree with you with the sentiment that Crystal Palace was the better team. Or if you want to put it, and I think a more, probably a, a more precise way, they were the better team that day. Uh, I, when I look at the stats, you know, there's really not that, not that much there that I didn't expect to see. I mean, I think I've mentioned this a few times now and maybe I'm just like, you know, uh, (laughs) suffering from my own, my own ego. But, you know, when you look at the stats, clearly the possession is way in favor of Manchester United. They have the ball. I don't even remember exactly. I think it was what, like... 70% 70% of the time or something like that. Mm-hmm. And if you watch the game too, they have the ball. Not only do they have the ball, they have the ball in the, in the opponent's half for a large majority of that time. Um, but they were not able to be dangerous. or It's not that they weren't able to, but they struggled to be dangerous just by having the ball so much, right? If you, if you have the ball that much, you should be extremely dangerous. And so when you look at the stats, it's obvious that the number of things that happen are going to be heavily in favor of them. They're going to do a lot more than you are. The question is, how dangerous were they, right? Which I'm sure unexpected goals might be able to tell us uh, with greater precision. But at the same time, one thing that really jumped out to me was when you look at uh, the crosses, and we'll talk about a little. Bit, I'll talk a little bit more about where I think this is important, but. They, according to the stats here, and I don't know how they collect these stats, and and I'm going to even tweak my interpretation of them a little bit, but when you look at the stats, they had 28 crosses, apparently. But they have another stat here for accurate crosses, which I assume is a subset. And of accurate crosses, they have five. 
we'll talk a little bit about this later, but I think that you'll, I, I think I'll try to make my case later that I think that uh, is where the biggest difference could be made for their team. They're struggling to have a game that involves crossing the ball into the box. At least they were against a team like Crystal Palace. You know, maybe if defense and midfields are different, maybe they won't struggle as much, but I think they really struggle with that. And that's one of the places they could have done, uh, they could have done better. Um, they could have had a lot more of that. Um, and, and I don't know how they collect the number of these attempted crosses or these actual balls that make it into the box, but either way, I don't think they were particularly dangerous in, in all of their possession. Um, and, and I think that uh, this is a, a great example of that expected goal situation where, you know, if you look at the number of chances created for both teams, we get we end up saying, what, 12 for both? Tying at 12 chances created. Yet yeah. the distribution of possession is 76% to 24. Yeah. Incredible. I mean, that's... I, just to give our listener context if you didn't watch the game, um, Jordan I, uh, Andres Townsend scores for Crystal Palace first in the seventh minute of the game. Um, it's a nice little run from Schlupp down the left for Crystal Palace. He squares the ball. Townsend just puts it right in. Lindelof, I'm highlighting him, um, kind of had a chance for a play on the ball and was unable to make it. Um, to close out the first half, uh, Crystal Palace has another really great chance. And uh, Jordan Ayew has a, a great shot that David De Gea makes an incredible single-hand diving save, really strong hand. I thought De Gea was excellent this whole game, and really, uh, you know, his defenders let him down. He had some problems last season, uh, but he, overall in his time at United, has been so consistent, and he, he was terrific. Coming out off his line, he made some really nice plays, um, and, yeah, and, and that save at the end of the half, terrific. He, the one the, thing I do think he struggled with, just to interview, is is build up out of the back, though. He, totally. He, pa- he passed a ball away. He almost boofed one outside the 18 at his feet. It's just not – that's not how he plays. And I think he's trying – they're trying to play him that way, and that's just not the way he's going to be able to do it for them, unfortunately. Um, I think that's exactly right. He had a, a pretty bad giveaway that was that was covered up well by United, but um, could have could have really been a problem. Second half, the, though. The second half, um, Mason Greenwood comes on. I want to talk about him kind of later on. Uh, and Van de Beek also comes on a little bit after um, that. And then we kind of get into the controversy. Uh, there's a handball called on Victor Lindelof in the 69th minute of the game. Um, and a lot of people, it, it goes to VAR. I did think it's kind of cruel when a play like that happens and then play continues and play continued for almost a minute and then they're calling it back. It's almost like, oh, I got away with one. Oh, no. Like, <laughs> now, like, what's the statute of limitations here on VAR? Please, uh, let's write that one down. Uh, but a lot of people were really up in arms about that. Um, I'm curious. Did you think that was a handball um, that warranted no. a penalty in that situation? I, I do not. It was tough. I, it was tough to watch. It's not tough to decide. I, I don't feel that was a hand. I mean, I understand the, 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 again, I understand to a certain extent the, the categories that we're looking at here. The hand, is it close to the body? You know, is the, is, is, 
you know, is it, is it in a way intentional or something like that? You know, and I think a lot of times what we're thinking of now is intentional when it comes to handballs is really whether the person was intending to move their arm in a given direction. If their arm is flailing, we don't think of it as intentional, but if the guy's doing an intentional movement, then somehow it becomes intentional. I think this is kind of an example. He's running. When you run, your arms are going to move in tandem with your feet and they're going to move at the exact same pace and he's extending himself in such a way that, of course, his arm is going to come up. Of course. His right arm is going to raise and it hits that and, and it goes over the goal. I don't think it would have gone in the goal either way. Um, and I just don't... I mean, like I said, I, this is this is my, you know attorney plaza at the at the wheel but my interpretation of the law here is that's not that's no pk um i I think i think i i think in a certain sense you have to just like with any law you have to make sure that your uh, interpretation lines up with with your internal moral compass and my moral compass here is what do we want is that the kind of handball that we we want you know a, a situation where i can try to game you for example into I can hit your arm in a moment in your in your running movement, and that's going to get me a PK. Not to say that anybody could accomplish such a scheme, yeah, but like, yeah. is that what we want to incentivize? I don't think so, you know. Um, and I just didn't think that that was merited. I really didn't. And in a part of me, honestly, was sad that they got it. I said this at the time because I thought it would discredit what happened. I don't think it did. Manchester United fans seem uh, not to excuse anything that happened in that game, but yeah. uh, but I yeah I don't think that it was a handball. So. I was curious, and I, uh, I know our research team has been spotty, so I did look into this myself. Um, That's good. And the IFAB, the letter of the law as it reads is, it's a handball when the player touches the ball with their hand or arm, when the hand or arm has, been made, um, has made their body unnaturally bigger, or the hand is above their shoulder level unless the player – deliberately plays the ball which then touches their hand or arm so like if Lindelof had kicked it into his own hand or arm like that um, or if he had even headed it it actually wouldn't have been a handball and a lot of people were comparing the call to uh, a VAR review that happened in the Arsenal game where Arsenal's central defender Gabriel um, had a a similar touch kind of on like his mid-arm in the box but it had come off of his head. So in, in, in the rule, it's if it comes off the player, if it deflects off the player and hits their arm, it's not a handball. Um, so I, I do kind of think in reading that, it, you know, it's a handball. It, his body is un, unnaturally bigger, and I know what you mean about the motion of running. And this is why I kind of think that the handball rule needs to be revised because, like you, this is – not in the spirit of what I want that call to be. Like I want that call to be something that is clear and obvious. And I think there's some, um, some we, we should have some more room for interpretation for referees. And I think any referee would watch this and be like, that's not in the spirit of what a handball is. Like that's not Lindelof trying to deflect the ball away. That's him running and his hand coming into contact with the ball. Um, Absolutely. But the, the controversy continues because uh, Crystal Palace step up, and I think it's I think it's Jordan Ayew who steps up, and he takes a terrible penalty kick, and De Gea saves it, mm-hmm. and it's a great save. And then cruelly, play continues, and like on that VAR, what's the statute of limitations here? They continue to play, and then it gets called back for a retake because De Gea's right foot is not on the line. 
And the new rule is keepers have to have both feet on the line when the kick is taken. And part of me feels bad because De Gea, it wasn't like he had an advantage. His foot is just hovering above the line. But then another part of me was like, you know what? I don't feel bad at all. This is Manchester United. This is the team that got like a zillion penalties called for them last year that dives and flops all the time they're in the opponent's box. This is Karma. This is you, you reap what you sow, boys. And what you sow is a lot of flopping and a lot of intentionally trying to get penalties. So here you go. And then my boy, Will Saha, steps up and just slots home a beautiful penalty kick um, to make it 2 0. United pull one back. Donny Vandebeek scores on his uh, pr- Premier League and Manchester United debut. A solid goal, some nice play with Fosu Mensa. And then Crystal Palace just sees it out. Um, and, yeah, they, they close out the game. Um, I can't remember the minute that they scored. I think it's the 85th minute. Wilfred Zaha scores another one, um, getting the assist from the new boy, Eze. And, I, yeah, Lindelof, again, is at the center of this goal. He had the opportunity to make a play. He just gets kind of done. He, he, I think he touched it, but didn't really get enough of a touch, and, and Zaha's able to finish. So, Really rough game for the Lindelof stands out there, if any of them existed. He's kind of involved in all three of these goals. But, um, yeah, the thing that jumped out to me watching this game is Crystal Palace scores almost instantly. Like, the game is barely underway, and they score a goal. That happens. And then Crystal Palace just drops into these four defenders who are just, like, sitting on top of the eighteen. And they don't move. Like, they are locked in there. You know, they're moving with the players, but they are, like, locked into this deep block. And United has so much of the ball. They've got Bruno Fernandes. They've got Paul Pogba. And I'm just like, if there's a team that's equipped to break this down, it should be Manchester United. But they can't break it down. So um, I think that's leading us into our tactics question for this week. You're a coach. You're working with your team, and you're playing against a deep block. You're playing against a team that's really sitting back. How do you break that down? What are you encouraging your team to do? What are your tactics going forward? That's I, I like. I really like this tactical question uh, for this week, um, especially because I do think that we saw a lot of examples of this. Um, I want to be clear that I uh, I did say last week that when we were picking our upsets that. A loss to a loss to Crystal Palace wasn't outside of my imagination. Uh, in fact, in fact, it might have been something I was daydreaming about uh, for most of the week. Um, <laughs> but I'll say this: I I think that um, the question of how you break down a deep sitting defense uh, it's it's of course like anything in soccer. It's not a, it's not a single. Uh, there's no, there's no one answer to it. It's not any kind of binary, um, but there are some principles that really apply, right? And all of those principles uh, are about the idea of space. So in soccer, I think the first thing you have to understand is that um, space, right? Playing in less space really usually isn't the problem. It's what space means. Space uh, is really just a proxy for time. The less, the less space you have around you, the less time you have to play the ball. And as you move into tight spaces, it means you're going to have to play the ball extremely quickly. What kind of speed matters when you have to do that is usually speed 
upstairs. How quickly you make your decisions, the kinds of decisions that you know will work well, uh, and uh, usually a good amount of chemistry as well, which I think of as also in a, a form of intelligence. Reading the play, reading the situation, knowing the player, anticipating. And that's, that's what you need to be better at when you play in tight spaces. Now, if you're a team that can't play in tight spaces, or at least not a tight, as tight as the ones that the other team is making, then you have to do something to seduce them into giving you more space. And those are your choices. So when you look at a situation like this, as a coach, it's not as simple. It's not as simple as it might seem. You know, there's not one path you're gonna you're gonna set out on. Um, be, you know, just you're just gonna work on that with every team, every single. Every team is gonna have their own advantages, their own things, and you want to expose the other team to those advantages that you have. And if one of those advantages is not playing through in tight spaces, then you don't want to do that. You want to seduce them. But if it is, by all means. You know, I remember, and maybe this is an icon, I mean, this is emblematic of their play, but I did remember uh, a game uh, that I watched of Dorman's last year. And the way that they cut up space in the box was tremendous. I mean, they, they still struggled to score, but that was their style. That was their approach, playing short, very quick one touch passes inside the 18. If you go back to watch this game, I want to note one thing too, is that the reason why I think that this was a poor performance by Manchester United was not only because they struggled to break this down, but because I don't think that they actually sat as deep as you might seem. In the second half, and by the second half of the second half, second half, they were sitting very deep, and they, or at least they weren't moving as much. But even at the end of the first half, you're going to see a lot of counter runs. You're going to see some build-up play in the midfield, right? And, and I think, and so what I think is it was, is kind of uh, worrisome is that they couldn't make the most of it, even though it wasn't laid on that thick. Uh, and and I and I and I think that they struggled to pick up pick away. So let's go a little deeper then into this taxic question, right? So I've given you some examples broadly. You either going to play through, which is going to require some mental speed, or you're going to have to seduce them out because you need to make space. Now. Uh, if, as I've already kind of, if not explicitly said, alluded to, right, if you're going to try to play through them, you need players. They're going to play the ball usually very, very well on the ground and in quick combinations. Yeah. Now, does Manchester United have that? I think they do um, to a certain extent in the individual play. I don't think they have the chemistry uh, or, the, or, the, or, the, or the habit of doing it inside the 18 regularly. Can I ask you about Please? that really quickly? Absolutely. Because, um, that was something. That was exactly one of the things I was wondering about watching this, um, and like Martial, I think has that. Uh, Pogba, Bruno, Mason Greenwood, I think they have that. I think Rashford really looked the odd man out a lot in this game, in that sort of play, and I saw him miss the the last pass very frequently, and. Um, I really love Marcus Rashford, but I, 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 I view him as someone who's better in the take-ons and the one-on-ones, and not so good at that quick sort of give-and-go interplay. And, um, and I, but I, I guess what I was wondering about that is, is this a, a problem of personnel, or do you think this is a problem of coaching and training? Like, do you think Ole is not doing enough of that sort of play with the personnel he has in training? Uh, you know, I, I think in a certain sense. This kind of goes to the bigger point that I that I want to make, which is that think about what you have and think about your comparative advantage, you know, and then try to make that the main part of your play. So could they do this? 
I think so. Are they not doing it because they don't do it that much? Probably. But is that what they should be going to try to do to break it? I'm not so sure. Um, I think that the, where they play best or the, or the style of play that they play best is, the, is honestly the counter. They have speed. Marcus Rashford is probably one of the most dangerous players they have. And yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think it's his best suit uh, or the best fit for him to be trying to make those runs. He can he do it? Of course. He's an excellent player. But I think on a larger scale, it's also, it is about practice, even if you have players that can do it. And I still don't think you should be necessarily focusing on this if you have the personnel that you have at Manchester United. Um, yeah. I just don't think that's how they should try to approach it. Um, I think they should approach it a little bit more like I saw Arsenal approach it. Um, I think they should approach it, honestly, a lot like I saw uh, Leicester approach it. Um, they... The, the, the key here is that, like I said, if you don't have what it takes to make those little passes in there, and that not, not what it takes, let me rephrase that. If you don't, if that's not your plan to do yeah. that, then, uh, because for whatever reason, then you have to try to seduce them. And there's two ways to seduce a defense, and you can do both of them at the same time. One of them is you can seduce them for depth. You can actually try to seduce them out of their box. Alternatively, you can try to seduce them with breadth. You can try to make them spread apart very wide, right? When you spread them, when you bring them out, you create space where? Right behind them, which is the space that you can attack, especially when you have fast players. That's something that I could see Manchester United doing pretty well. And then I think the other way that you could do it is by spreading them wide. And when you spread them wide, you create more space in between the players. Easier to send through balls with quick players. You can, once again, take a lot of advantage. So you're trying to create more space, right? Rather than dealing with the space you have with superior intellect and, and chemistry. Um, and what you see in this game is is lacking, I think, on both sides. On the one hand, I do not think that they did a good job of creating space behind, uh, behind Crystal Palace. They were completely content with holding the ball about 10 yards past half field and then just distributing back and forth. There's no team... That's going to make an aggressive play to you when you're 10 feet past the past the halfway line. And as you try to come in, you know, if you have a good defense, you're going to shift right to left, just keeping pressure on the ball. And they're not going to create any more space. There's no reason for you to move forward, right? So this is creating space behind you. On the other hand, if you want to create space between the players, you want to spread the game wide, then what do you need to do? You need to be dangerous from wide, right? And when you're dangerous from wide positions, defenders are forced to come in and try to stop you. And over time, that spreads them out. But again, and I think this is that point, the stat I tried to point out earlier, out of all the crosses that they made, they didn't have very many accurate ones. And I think if you actually watch the game, right, if you actually see the data rather than just reading the, 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 how many, you know, we counted of each, you're going to see that they ran the same problem a lot. They ran the ball wide, and then it was a 2v2 wide that couldn't break down. The defense was set up. It was an e there was the same equal equal partners and you know equal players on each side of the ball, and they had to go backwards. They were never able, not never, but they really struggled to have combination play on the wings that would get them with the ball, with space in front of them, crossing into the 18. Are they going to be great at that? I don't know. But if you start to do that, you're going to start to have to bring defenders out more quickly and farther, and that's going to create more space in the middle so that when you drive to the center. The defense has going to stay, is going to cheat a little bit, expecting you to pass that ball for that cross that's been so dangerous. 
And that's going to create space in the middle, right? They can't protect both at the same time. I think that that's where they could have really sold it. Now, one thing, now, they weren't all bad. One thing they did try to do, it didn't work out for them, was shoot from the outside. And that's the other thing you need to do, right? If you want to create space behind them, you can seduce them out. How do you seduce them out? Well, all I said was they dribbled the ball around in midfield, you know, and trying to, I think, trying to go wide, but unsuccessfully. If you want to bring a defense out, you can shoot and be dangerous enough that they have to step to you. I actually think they were doing that, and that's why you saw the Crystal Palace line around the 18, because they needed to be at the 18 for those shots. They just couldn't make anything of the space behind them either, right? They struggled to put those balls in over the top um, and have players running onto them. That's not a particularly difficult thing. It just requires very good timing, which usually means practice. You have to be deliberate about how you're playing that, that, that style of attack. I think that's something actually Manchester City does extremely well. I don't know what Pep does exactly, but he, he, he devotes in their head a good amount of space for these balls that will come over the back line into the 18 for a Sterling, for an Aguero, right? For, a, for a, you know, even for, a, if, even for De Bruyne, if he's not on the other end for some reason, they can tap that ball in inside, the, inside that 18, sometimes even in the six. You can shoot. The other way you can do it is, is, is any of a, of a myriad ways of, of seducing the defense out. One of the things I actually liked to see Arsenal do in their game, sometimes you would win the ball wide and they'd get a guy in them and they would dribble backwards. It, it, it doesn't sound all that helpful and it looks really dumb when you dribble backwards and lose the ball. But if you dribble backwards with a guy in you, that guy is very likely to follow you, especially if he has you under pressure. And if you do that, a lot of times a defensive line decides to step because they think, oh, look, we can take that space now. We can leave the guys we're with offsides. And then once you dribble back, suddenly they've moved a few yards forward. You play the ball. You actually pass the ball backwards. And if you can make quick combination play, which I think Arsenal is also trying to do, whether they're you know perfect at it yet or not, I'm not sure. But those direct balls in the space behind... I know that it takes a 1v1 with maybe a little bit of magic to, to, to score a goal, but creating the 1v1 in the first place was the thing that Manchester United struggled with. Um, so they, they, that's one way to do it. Um, another way, and I thought that honestly this was handed to them in the first half, is when you win the ball in midfield, you need to transition immediately. Now, Crystal Palace, to their credit, did a great job here. You'll notice this foul. Uh, I think it oh, was yeah. Greenwood getting the ball at half field with three behind him. And, and I can't remember the defender who was there. Put his arms all around him, took Joel him down. Ward. Joel, Joel Ward. Joel Ward. I just written down my game notes. Yeah. Joel Ward takes him down and prevents that counter. They did a great job. They were smart always about how they played. They, when, they, when they won the ball in tight positions where they weren't feeling good about it, they sent the ball deep. Didn't matter. Because they knew that losing the ball in transition would be devastating to a team like Manchester United. Or if they didn't, they certainly made a good habit of, of, of treating them like that. And at the end of the day, what they could have done is let the other team have space when they, ha- when they get the ball. That, that's, the, that's the thing. There's no rule that says if you can press, you should. There's no rule that says that. In fact, if you have a team that, that does better with space behind, you might not want to do that at all. Take your attack. Don't necessarily give them the ball on purpose, but when they come with it, give them the space and then win the ball in the midfield. I thought you saw a lot of the opposite happening. Manchester United in the Crystal Palace half, occasionally losing the ball in the midfield, and then a lightning speed counterattack from Zaha and the crew around him. And what they knew was when we have space, we take it. There was this quote, from one of the announcers, I'm trying to remember who said it. He said, here we have uh, Crystal Palace making a feast out of crumbs. 
And mm. I honestly, I, I like the impression that it leaves, but I think I'd actually write it differently. I'd say that Crystal Palace take takes big bites when they get them, and Man U just is is, is satiating themselves by nibbling around the edges. Uh, and and I, I saw that if you watch this game again, which I really encourage you to do because I think it's an exciting game when you see it this way, just count for yourself how many times Manchester United tries to get past the 18 and the wide areas and struggles in a 2v2 that they can't seem to beat and has to go backwards. Count the number of times they lose the ball in transition on the opponent's half and are sent on a 40-50 yard sprint back to their own half to try to defend a counterattack. Right, And then count how many times they dribbled the ball from wide spaces into the 18 and shot into a man's body. If you count those alone, I think you'll understand why they struggled this game. Um, and it was clear that they didn't have an alternative. They didn't. They were lost. Uh, and for those Overwatch fans out there, it's like when you try to attack a first point with a Bastion, and the Bastion kills you the first time, suddenly you don't have a game plan. You're all just chickens with your heads cut off. How do we stop a Bastion? I don't know. And that seemed to be the kind of experience that they, I, that I think they, they, they struggle with. They tried to drive in, got block, shot blocked, tried to go outside, couldn't beat the two-man defense, and never had the, I think, the patience or the wisdom to just uh, give the space to Crystal Palace, close the space behind so that Zaha couldn't run, and then counter back. Uh, there's no team in soccer I've ever seen have the ball and not go into the opponent's half when given the space. So give it to them, counter make the space behind. I thought that was an excellent summary of tactics in this game. And it's really illuminating and making me feel better about like watching some of those moves from Arsenal. I think what you said about dribbling backwards and kind of seducing and drawing the man out, like I've seen that happen and being a, a, a dummy, I'm like, scary. It's going it's the scary. wrong way. Turn around. <laughs> but I, yeah. I, it makes sense. Um, a couple of thoughts that kind of jumped to mind when you were talking, and one of them I was sort of thinking about when watching the game was, um, I would I would have liked uh, Manchester United to drop uh, McTominay out of the central defensive midfield position and pull him back into being a center back, and then push their wing backs up and basically go to three at the back with two wing backs because. I, the width thing was so real. There were so many times where I'm watching McTominay, Pogba, and Fernandez just kind of ping the ball between the three of them in the middle of the field, and it's like you can recycle that there, but it, who cares? Um, it's a new, it's a neutral transition. It's it's not something that creates more danger, and it's not dangerous as a transition itself. I I guess then the other thing that I just wanted to say really quickly was, you know, we talked a lot about. United's tactical um, maybe mistakes or or them, them not trying out these strategies to their fullest extent. Um, but I don't want to take away from Crystal Palace because I thought they were so disciplined. Unbelievably disciplined. The perfect word for it. And I and I thought the way that they that Roy Hodgson set them up, he just outcoached Ole like. It, I, you know what you know what out coaching is is like I want to be clear it's like out gardening somebody you don't do it in a day Roy you know Roy didn't come to the night the night before and out coach uh, uh, Ole he he's been out coaching him you just don't get the results until a little bit later and 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 when you see a team that is disciplined right 
Uh, sometimes discipline is hard to see because it's some creative teams aren't don't seem disciplined, but they are in the way that they play. When you see discipline on a team, when you can see that, that is something that that's a garden well groomed, well grown, stakes in the ground, things to help them grow, ideas to set to like center their perspectives around. I think that this is going to be a very strong team this year. Zaha is a is a is a phenomenal player up top, and if he has a structure behind him that can feed him balls and teams are willing to throw a, a, an attack at their half for more than half the game and let them counter, he's going to have his shots. No doubt. Totally agree. Um, I kind of wanted to maybe shift gears out of tactics and think, step back and think a little bit bigger picture about Manchester United. Um, if our listener does happen to be a United fan and they don't already, I really recommend checking out Mark Goldbridge on YouTube and on Twitter. I, I think he's hilarious, and I also think he's been so right about United. He's a big United fan. I, I think he really nails a lot about them. And he said something about their front office that I thought was interesting. And United has been linked with a lot of players, linked with Jaden Sancho, some big moves. Nothing has really happened in this transfer window for them at all. Um, and he pointed out that the same thing happened last winter with Bruno Fernandes. They took a long time to get that deal done and get him through the door because they're bargaining and, and trying to go for deals. And they drop points in those weeks when they don't have those quality players. And I couldn't help but think, watching this, if Manchester United has Jaden Sancho starting instead of Dan James, then this could look like a very different game. Like, he's someone who can play that kind of small ball, that Dortmund game. He's the guy who's doing those things for Dortmund. So you bring him into this equation and... He's a person who can be equipped to really take down this side. And I guess that that's that sort of brings me to the larger question of like when the results go wrong at Manchester United, who who's at fault here? Like, is this coming down to the personnel that's on the pitch? Is this the manager? Is this the front of office? Um, I, I, I wanted to just give a couple of quick stats about United. Um in the past five years, their transfer spend has been their net transfer spend, so sales incoming and um, players outgoing, is negative five hundred sixty-six million dollars. So this club has spent an enormous amount of money since Sir Alex Ferguson has left on transfers. They spent over a billion dollars. That's in seven years. That's since two thousand and thirteen. They have the highest wage bill of any club in the Premier League by a good distance. Like, it's not even super close. So this is a, a club that is, like, it's, it's hard for me to look at this team and be like, they're, they're not being invested in. They're, they're not going out and buying players. You can say they're buying the wrong players, but Manchester United is, they're spending money, and they're spending a lot of it. And so to me, it kind of comes down to, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and feeling like I don't think that that guy is equipped to manage a club of the size of Manchester United. And yes, he's, he got some good results. He got him in the Champions League, and I think that kind of papered over some stuff. But he, you should win this game. Manchester United should come in and be able to win this game and should be able to look stronger. And he should be a coach who's not getting out coached by someone like Roy Hodgson. Um, and May, and, and I guess that's the point of what you were saying before. Like, 
he's inexperienced and he's a young manager. He hasn't been there for a long time. He hasn't been in this role for a long time. So I wonder how much we'll continue to hear about that over the course of the season. But I think it will be very interesting to see how Ole develops as a manager, how long he keeps that job at United and um, how the squad progresses. My, my one last caveat, though, to that is there has been some weird stuff, right? Um, Harry Maguire was arrested in Greece, and there was a whole saga there that was pretty unfair to him, it seems like. I almost and forgot put about him, that. How could I forget? And, and, you know, this is his first game back from that. And then uh, Mason Greenwood, this young phenom, has this whole scandal in Iceland um, where he's kicked out of the England squad, and... It reflects really poorly. So, you know, there's some locker room stuff that is not really in Ole's control and probably, you know, didn't didn't bode well for the team's spirit going into this game. But um, definitely a club to keep an eye on. This is a huge year. This is I, I feel like this is a really like defining year for Manchester United. I, I I'll say I'll say a piece about the the responsibility too. I think that. You, what you have is a, is a problem in the way that you're approaching teams that are that 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 breaking down defense. You have a problem attacking, and you don't have a lot of very strong defenders. So, are you going to solve the problem by sewing up your vulnerabilities and just trying to play solid every game and hoping for you know a, a good result? Or are you going to try to really invest further in your attacking force, which you know you have potential for, but maybe you just haven't quite you know orchestrated, organized in a way to make the most of yet? There's always a third option, which is just buy new players, right? That's, a, that's an yeah. option. But at the same time, when you talk about the wage bill, it seems like maybe that strategy has been a little bit run, run, through the, run through the ringer here. We have millions spent, uh, profits lost. You have, I think, a strong enough personnel. I mean, I think Van de Beek is a great signing. Personally, I'm a big Van de Beek fan. They have Paul Pogba, who, I, I mean, you... Incredible to me sometimes that he played like a role on the on that on that France World Cup team. Like, and then I see him play on Manchester United, and it, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. Um, I, I, it's it's bizarre to think that that would be that way. And I really think that, for what it's worth, I think that this is a problem that Ole could solve. Um, I think what you need more of is you need more crosses into the box. Um, and I think that what you need to recognize is that you're not going to get them from deeper. Trying to break down that two on the outside for a reason or another, you're not doing it. I think if you switch the ball faster, you'll have more of an opportunity. You'll have more time to execute. Or if you bring an extra man in there, you might be able to overpower. But I really think what you do is you bring the extra man, drop the ball from that blocked space backwards and have what would be the equivalent of an early cross, so a deeper cross into the six and send in players. You start to do that, and those players are going to have to step to those early crosses, going to create space behind the wings. Now you can cross from wide there. I think where Manchester United it would be their deadliest would be the place where I always think of Sterling as, as his deadliest. Behind the outside defender running into the box from the sideline. It's a scary, it's a scary situation. He cuts one, one angle deep, he can shoot. That's Rashford, no problem. Uh, he 
you know, cuts in, block shot. He puts the ball on the ground in the air to people coming in the back. Paul Pogba, giant man, certainly can play in the air. He needs to commit there for those kinds of balls. Play a ball on the ground, play around the key. I mean, there's so many things. I think that's where you want to find that, but you got to make that space by having earlier cross and sending people back. That's easy to coach. Not easy to coach. It's an easy concept to coach. Um, to make sure that players are doing it, to have the rapport with them, to, 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 to build that, I think is a little bit more complicated, but I would expect from someone who's getting paid as much as I'm sure he is, that Ole could do a little more with it. I don't, I think that's, I think that's on him. I do. Um, if they get Jaden Sancho, they will fix it a little bit. He, he can do a lot of stuff. There's no doubt. He might be able to be another piece on their Swiss army knife, but I think they just need to sharpen the blade <laughs> that they have. Uh, if I can put it that way. Ed Woodward, um, if you're our one listener for this podcast, when you inevitably fire Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, uh, Rodrigo is available. So you feel free. Uh, 5% finder's fee. I uh, was the one who introduced you, but um, feel free. I'll, 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 drop his, uh, I'll drop his phone number in a, in, a, in a text to you later on in the week. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to wrap up with some predictions for week three. want to start with underdog. Who are we feeling is going to be the plucky team to pull out the result uh, in the game where they probably shouldn't? Um, I want to kick it to you first, Rodrigo. What, do you, what were you eyeing for an underdog? Thank you. Well, I had two in mind. Three, depending on what kind of person you are. If you're the kind of guy who wants to count out Sheffield right now and say that they're lost, let me tell you, Leeds doesn't know what has what's coming for them. Cannot be more excited to see that game. I don't think it's an upset because it's Leeds. After all, they just got here. Right. But if you're if you're a man selling Shelfield short, I want you to know that won't happen. Uh, but the other two games that come to mind right away, but the one I'm going to stick with here, uh, the one I'm going to stick with is the Brighton Man United game. Oh, yes. Keep going. I think that Brighton has a real shot at taking down Man United. Um, it's going to be difficult, I think, in some part because Man United uh, is going to be upset. They're going to be coming out at least for blood. And, you know, any game that gets bloody, uh, you know, this could, could have a, could, is going gonna, is gonna to be a little more chaotic. could go either way. But I think that's going to be a surprisingly physical game if Bruno can manage to stay on his feet for more than 10 seconds. Uh, and I think Brighton's going to pull away with a win. I love that prediction. I'm just feeling... There's something uh, about birds right now, like the seagulls, the eagles. I'm just feeling birds for underdogs. I was going to say Brighton Man United. My other pick is Crystal Palace over Everton. Mm. I, I'm like I said, I'm I'm a kind of a I'm I'm obsessed with Crystal Palace. I've been really into them for a while. They're definitely my second team, um, and. Roy Hodgson has this team looking really well organized defensively. And, you know, Everton has been humming, and Hamas Rodriguez is going to be a problem. I don't have supreme confidence in Richarlison finishing in front of goal. And Calvert Loon has been cooking, but those center backs for Crystal Palace, Kiate and uh, uh, Sako, look, have looked terrific. I think Crystal Palace 
can really spring on the counter and hit Everton in a similar way that West Brom did, but they're just Crystal Palace is just better at that than West Brom. Mm-hmm. So I like Crystal Palace in that spot. I think Everton, everyone's going to pick Everton, but um, I think Crystal Palace is going to shock shock the world and shock Everton. My only criticism of your choice is that I don't think Crystal Palace is the underdog. <laughs> um, all right, let's move on to our guaranteed win. This guaranteed dub. We need to put a conditional on this because West Brom is so ass that I don't think it's fair to like call it any team that's playing them. Chelsea is playing them. Oh, gosh. That's like, uh, please, you know, pray for West Brom. They, that's 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 a guaranteed win. I I want to imagine some world where West Brom is kind of plucky and pulls it out. It's just no, no. Chelsea's gonna win that game. But if I'm obeying by the rule that I just set for myself, and I'm thinking about a guaranteed win, um, I'm eyeing Tottenham at Newcastle. I think that Tottenham is they're just higher quality team. Newcastle has looked kind of a mess. They've looked kind of all over the place. They got that weird win against West Ham. But, um, yeah, I, I like Tottenham in that spot a lot. So that would be my guaranteed win of the week. What about you? Well, I got to say, that was going to be my choice as well. I, 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 for a moment, thought of Wolves and West Ham um, hmm. because I thought, I, I don't know, I think, I think Wolves might really take it to West Ham. Uh, they, they looked good today. I know they didn't quite execute uh, as well as they could have, and they came a little short. But they did look good, um, and I think that, I have a lot of confidence. I mean, I watched a lot of the Wolves when they were, you know, coming through in the in the Europa League, and I actually really enjoyed watching Traore pretty early on um, in the second half of the season. Um, and I, I so I, I I like them quite a bit, and I think that they might have a Gasol in there. But I, I think Tottenham's going to probably crush Newcastle. Um, Newcastle isn't isn't terrible, but Tottenham has I think more than the necessary artillery to just shell Newcastle. Same. Um, game of the week. There are there are a lot of good games. Like I'm looking at the slate and I'm just like, man, I'm excited about all these fixtures. There's none that really feel like they're not going to have some interesting narrative storyline to get to watch. So, um, Liverpool Arsenal is just jumping out to me, both as an Arsenal fan, but. Arsenal has beaten Liverpool twice in recent memory. In the Community Shield, they beat them, and they beat them right at the end of the Premier League season two. Uh, one of the few teams to be able to do that in recent memory. Um, and this is kind of like round three. So I'm excited to, to see that game. I'm not very optimistic. I think especially after Liverpool signed Thiago. But... Um, Arsenal has, like, they've pulled out these games in spots where they really shouldn't have under Arteta. So, um, I think that will be, that'll be a great one. Um, something that is kind of weird about this game, and we've been talking a lot about laws, uh, this is kind of the running theme for this episode. Agreed. Um, Boris Johnson is talking about forcing British pubs to close at 10 p.m. because of COVID. There's been a spike in COVID in uh, the UK. And someone pointed out on Twitter, hold on, the Arsenal-Liverpool game starts at 8.15, uh, London, Greenwich Mean Time. So that game is going to, it's going to be like the 89th minute, and it's going to be 2-2, two to two, 
and it's going to strike 10 p.m. and bars are going to ask people out. And I'm like, how in God's name are you going to kick out a bunch of like scouser scumbags in Liverpool when you know the the game's on the line, 89th minute, 10 p.m. bars close. So power to the good people. Um, work in the pubs over in the UK you have to enforce that if that ends up happening you know I do think that as much as I'd like I'm excited to see Liverpool and Arsenal play what I'm worried about what I'm unfortunately worried about is Thiago I think that Liverpool if they choose to if they have the opportunity if they choose to play him and he is 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 gelling which I think he can do pretty fluidly with most teams he's one of those players that I think can do a lot of different things with the ball he can he can play decent defense he can send beautiful through balls he can play you know in in tight spaces up in the top third I think that he is going to be a dynamic piece of the midfield that has just never been a central component of how Liverpool attacks and I'm concerned about that especially for Arsenal because the thing about uh, their play style is that they are going to inevitably lead some spaces behind when they do try to attack and unless they're studious about ending those plays early you know a la Ward in the Crystal Palace game this this past weekend I think there could be a lot of trouble. I can't imagine, you know, Mane Salah running on through balls from from Thiago. And I think, I think, I think I'll put it this way: I think the bars might be empty at halftime, um, unfortunately. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see. My game of the week. My game of the week pick. Tough, tough pick. I completely agree with you. On the one hand, I really want to see my my blades crush leads i want to see them crush leads and even if it's a scrap i just want to see them i want to see them earn a victory so that seems like an exciting one um it's at 4 a.m which means that i'm really gonna have to be excited for it uh (laughs) and the other game that if i i can't i i hate to double back is that brighton man united game i mean tell me that you aren't excited to see man united I think play a team that was in a not so different situation than Brighton last year. And I think what you're going to see is a lot of the same struggles. I think they're going to struggle again to be dangerous in possession. Now, did Manchester United have opportunities in the game uh, against Crystal Palace? Absolutely. Did they put them away? No. So change a few things and we've got a very different outcome. It won't necessarily be a blowout, but I really think that this Brighton team has what it takes to make it not only difficult, but find find space behind, right, to make to make their life challenging. Remember, if you're a team that struggles, right, in your back, you can either make sure they never get back there by attacking constantly, or you can sit back, let the other team come, and find the vulnerabilities behind. This game on paper in everyone's mind is about Manchester United coming to get revenge, uh, coming to get that W. And Brighton, from all I can see, is sitting in a position of a tie is a good result here, but let's go take them under. I'm seeing Lamptey cutting up some beautiful things on the outside, coming inside, making some through ball passes. I really think this could be a good game. All I hope... All I hope is that Manchester United doesn't score early. 
that's my one thing that might make this game lame and otherwise unimportant to me. Uh, as long as this game can stay even for even a little while, I think you're going to see some fireworks uh, with Brighton lighting them off. One, one to maybe store away in the back of your mind, listener. Manchester City plays Leicester Sunday morning. That's a that's a little tasty morsel for you to 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 have in mind. Because yeah, I, there there's some. Are we gonna get like Pep Guardiola revenge tour? You know, comeback kind of last dance KDB sort of whatever. Maybe. Is this also like Lester for real? I, there's some interesting things that I want to kind of tease out there, but um, I think it's an even game. I'll say that if you if you like those if you like watching either of those teams or both of them like I do, I think it's an even game, and that's a good game. You know. Well, um, we're staking a lot on this Brighton Manchester United game, so um, I hope that again we are super accurate, hundred percent nailing it. Uh, and Rodrigo, as always, man, I look forward to talking with you next week and enjoying some amazing Premier League. I hope with all of my heart that we continue to get 40 goals every couple of weekends. <laughs> yes! <laughs> That's what America needs right now. It needs a Peacock TV subscription and 40 goals <laughs> every, on a bi-weekly basis. Come with the paycheck. <laughs> it's been a pleasure, Duffy. I'll see you next week.